Crowdsource Tribune presents In association with Crowdsourced Politics This is Cypher State Welcome everybody one and all to Cypher State I'm your host and moderator Cypher here Today we are going to be diving deep into Tigray Today, I am joined by North Countryman. Oh, hi. Teo de Gaulle. Hey, what's up? Tiberius D. Greetings. And Universal Discourse. Hello. So let's go ahead and get started with the show. Abiy Ahmed, the current prime minister of Ethiopia and leader of the Prosperity Party, came to power on April 2nd, 2018, with the promise of further modernizing Ethiopia, tackling corruption, and improving relations with its neighbors. Prime Minister Ahmed was largely successful in these endeavors, gaining international praise for his reformist zeal and having negotiated peace with Eritrea in 2019, earning, earning him a Nobel Peace Prize. But now Ethiopia is embroiled in conflict once again. How did the promise of Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed turn out so wrong? That is what we are here to discuss. So... Tiberius D, I think that you had said that you would go uh, first in this in this endeavor, kind of talking about a little bit of the the history, geopolitical history of the of the area, and and some like geography and stuff like that, in order to reveal kind of why these things might be happening right now. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So uh, I want to give a bit of a macroscopic view, and then a bit of a microscopic, and I have to give three lenses. First is the geography of this general region, and that's re a really big deal because this area is known uh, on the macro level as the Horn of Africa, and there are certain places in the world where it seems to be that people want to kind of come to naturally, and these are usually temperate plains with river valleys. This is where most of the developed world is. There are areas that where people kind of avoid because it is the geography is not conducive to human habitation. These are largely mountainous areas. They are usually arid or tropical. Uh, this is places like Afghanistan, Central America, and ironically enough, generally in the area that we're talking about here. And so in a general sense, we have a geography here that is more conducive to conflict and the scarcity of resources that we'll definitely be getting into. Um, and so generally in the climate, if you're talking about the western part of this area, we're talking about an area that is the savanna, which is kind of similar in climate to India, but it has a significant amount of rainfall, but it's all in this period of about two to three months, and then it's dry for the rest of the year. So you can see where that would complicate, kind of complicate things. It's also as far as going east is that it's just incredibly arid. This is the area that is the Gulf of Aden, the lower Red Sea, that is renowned for its incredible rack of water, even though it has, you know, significant water there towards the sea. And so... It's kind of weird because this is an area that most people wouldn't want to go to, but because you have the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden there, it's now one of the major shipping routes in the world. And so anytime something kind of brush fires up here, it tends to attract the attention of not only powers, but world powers, because once the security and trade become under threat, that puts a lot of this on the radar for a lot of people. And so the history here goes back literally a thousand years, if not farther, because of the geography is that all of these peoples are differently brought up into different ethnic groups and different cultural groups that continually conflict with each other. And the empire of Ethiopia extends back hundreds of years. I can talk a little bit about the history, but to finish up my, my intro here is that in a general sense, this is a geography that is conducive to conflict and separation. And whenever there are major geopolitical issues that come to the front, it tends to become a battlefield. 
And uh, that is something that stretches back time and immoral. So if you guys have any questions or you want me to do some follow-up with any of that, I'd be happy to, but uh, I'm on a lot. Uh, thank you for giving us that information, Tiberius. To, to get into a little bit of the history here, what we see is that uh, a military coup disposed of the Ethiopian monarchy and established a military junta called the Derg. Originally, the Derg was a non-ideological group set to establish a new government of Ethiopia. In 1975, the Derg established a Marxist-Leninist-style government with itself as the vanguard. As with most Marxist-Leninist groups, it kind of went against the grain of what Ethiopia was prior to the establishment of the, the Marxist-Leninist group. Um, but I'll continue on with this, and then we can talk more about it. Priorities of the new government were abolishing feudalism, increasing literacy, nationalizing of industry, and sweeping land reform, including resettlement and villization from the Ethiopian highlands. Shortly after it was established, infighting began, which led to the purge of several high-level officials, leaving Mengutsu Hali Marim as the undisputed leader of the Derg. The Derg was in power from 1974 to 1991, having suffered several coup attempts border conflicts with its neighbors, and remained in a protracted civil war throughout its existence for numerous reasons. First, the Derg, like many Marxist-Leninist states at the time, carried out a campaign of political-motivated killings in an effort to cement power and fight back counter-revolutionary forces. The campaign, known as the Red Terror, was carried out from 1976 to 1978 and resulted in up to 500,000 deaths, mainly politically motivated. This caused a lot of resentment of other ethnic groups and regional forces outside of the center of the country and the dominant ethnic groups. Additionally, due to the need to keep members of the Derg loyal, corruption was rampant, and particularly in the case with land redistribution. Secondly, the Derg inalienated much of the Ethiopian population with its strict adherence to state atheism. The majority of the Ethiopian population is split between three major religious sects, Eastern Christian Orthodox, evangelicals, and Sunni Islam. The direct attacks on these institutions proved to be counterproductive to the establishment of a strong centralized Marxist-Leninist state as the target for reforms was the peasantry population and who was deeply religious. Lastly, strong nationalistic tendency existed within the regions of Tigray and Eritrea. Both regions were led by their own Marxist-Leninist group, with Eritrea represented by the Eritrean People's Liberation Front and Tigray represented by the Tigray People's Liberation Front. Both the TLPF and the EPLF mounted several successful military campaigns against the Derg and wrestled complete control of their respective territories. Throughout these conflicts, the Derg received assistance from Soviet Union, East Germany, Cuba, Libya, and North Korea, with Cuba supplying at one time 15,000 soldiers. The counterparts to the Derg were often assisted by Western and anti-communist powers. The USA backed Somalia in its incursions into Ethiopia, as Somalia was seen as an anti-Soviet ally in the region. The TPLF received massive assistance from the Tigrayan diaspora. The Tigrayan diaspora in the West succeeded in convincing Western governments and NGOs to back the Tigray insurgency through relief programs and direct aid. Much, if not all the aid, was funneled through the Relief Society of Tigray, which is known as REST. The TPLF was the main opposition force in Ethiopia during the civil war due to its success on the battlefield and the existence of REST. Like other successful insurgent movements, the TPLF won over the hearts and minds of the people within Tigray by providing much needed social services, particularly in regards to public education and dispute management. 
Furthermore, unlike the Derg, the TPLF allowed for the free practice of religion by the peasant population. While the TPLF was still committed to atheism as a principle, they chose to focus on church corruption rather than church dogma or doctrine. Outside help through the rest also buttressed their social programs with additional schools, medical aid, literacy programs, and drinking water. REST essentially served as the civil service arm of the TLPF. The TPLS military successes allowed them to recruit and help form three other ethnic-based insurgent groups within Ethiopia that bordered the Tigray region. The Amara Democratic Party, the Amora Democratic Party, and the Southern Ethiopian People's Democratic Movement. All in all, the constant state of conflict within Ethiopia, the mismanagement of public lands, the corruption within the Derg, drought, and the fall of the Soviet Union culminated in successful overthrow of the Derg in 1991. The TLPF, along with the groups that it helped create, formed Ethiopia's People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, with TPLF at the helm. The EPRDF established a system of ethnic federalism in which ethnic groups formed the background of regional governments, regional government zones, and national political parties. The construction that the EPRDF adopted allowed for ethnic groups to form their own government zones or even petition to succeed from the union via popular referendum, which Eritrea did in 1994. So that is the long story short of the... Ethiopian Civil War from 1974 to 1991. Tigray and the TLPF established what is now known as the government. However, however, uh, in, in 2019, Abiy Ahmed formed a new political coalition, which was the uh, political coalition minus the TLPF, which alienated much of the TLPF and Tigray population. So we have this massive coming together of these ethnic groups under a common cause against the central government of the Derg. And afterwards, the corruption and ethnic tensions that existed prior to the establishment of the Derg started to boil up and rise again. North Countryman, what are your thoughts on this? You are an international relations uh, kind of expert analyst. What, what are your thoughts, man? Yeah, I wish I were an analyst. I'm more an academic yeah, so the big thing for me, just from my perspective, is there's a concept in international relations theory called, you know, if, whether it's uh, liberalism, realism, and get the details, those are not important, called a fog of war. And one of those is you do not know what another state is going to do, and you essentially need to prepare for the worst. And what you're seeing in from other states near this, uh, for example, Eritrea being being involved, it does cause a little bit, bit of destabilization in that region, and that just raises more tensions, and that can lead to more bad decisions for things that really shouldn't uh, shouldn't go this way. Because looking at this, just from my perspective, is this is this was an effort at political reform that turned into total war because of an over because of the overreaction from the. Ethiopian government. There were nonviolent ways to potentially solve this, but they didn't go this go that way. I think Tiberius might have some more insight as to why. Tiberius, do you want to go? 
Yeah, I, I'd be happy to. I'm going to separate this into two small sections here uh, because one of it's a historical part, one of it's more contemporary uh, domestic. And by the way, this actually isn't even my area specialty. I, I didn't generally tend to deal with like North America and Western Europe uh, rather than this particular region. But let's get into it. Same, buddy. Um, yeah. <laughs> when, it, when it gets into the history, a few things that I had left out that I wanted to tag in is to a lot of these conflicts do have their history, not only just in the 1900s, but even in the 1800s. And uh, a quick snippet of history to give it to you is that uh, when the scramble of Africa really took off in the 1860s, particularly with the rise of the Suez Canal, uh, which I believe is completed in like 1873, is that this region really becomes a focal point for European colonization and the import of European power. And this region specifically gets here too. Now, the weird part here is that the, the one of the newest colonial powers is Italy at the time. And they are the people that show up in this region. And one of the earlier deals that is made is that Italy starts setting up shop here. And there, there is a power struggle within the empire of Ethiopia where they basically or excuse me, one of the vying contenders cedes land to uh, Italy in exchange for foreign support and recognition. And this uh, this colony that it, excuse me, that Italy will eventually build out will be known as Eritrea. Almost the exact same border is there. And of course, in light recently Tigray, uh, the northern border of Tigray is Eritrea. And there was a conversation on if uh, Tigray was actually going to join Eritrea during the Civil War, but it didn't get quite that far. So anyway, putting that in its context is that this is not something that it just blew, blew up in the last century. This is something that's been going on for a very long time. Uh, now, domestically, is that while this isn't my specialization, uh, I would largely say that this was uh, a keys to power conversation where the, the ruling central government that had used these reforms were openly going, all right, cool, we have this massive coalition to get us into power, but now to retain power is that we have to realize that some people have to get cut out. And Tigray is the, the basically the, the bootjack place that everyone looks at, the place that no one really likes to, if you will, the fifth column. And so they just kind of were cut out. And of course, that leads to the conflict that we are now. And that is my general analysis from what I am looking at here so far. So one of the other things that we should remember here is that uh, shortly after the successful ousting of the Derg, Eritrea successfully petitioned in order to set up its own state, because at the time of the Derg's existence, Eritrea was part of Ethiopia. Shortly after that, I think it was 95, 96 or so, their land disputes between Eritrea and Tigray erupted, and a war between Eritrea and Tigray lasted for a roughly 20 years after that. Tigray and the TLPF were instrumental in stopping Eritrea making gains beyond its borders. They were the military expertise that was able to fight back Eritrea and establish Ethiopia as a, the power center in the Horn of Africa that it is today. When, when Abiy Ahmed came to power and ousted the, the TLPF, from the governing coalition, that was seen as a grand slight against the TLPF because the TLPF basically established the country that it is today. And so they were looking at themselves as being unfairly marginalized in that situation and also um, were, were in fomenting distrust in the central government as had been done for centuries. A lot of the outlying areas outside of Omora, uh, Abbas Abba, where the central government is located, have always felt that they were repressed by the central government. And so 
when this happened and COVID happened, the prime minister canceled all elections, whereas Tigray wanted to continue its own elections and did so against the wishes of the central government and established new government within Tigray. Once that establishment happened, uh, some border disputes between Tigray or some disputes between Tigray and the central government led to fighting and the fighting then erupted into what we see today, which I mean, we're going to say what it is, ethnic cleansing bordering on genocide. And so that brings us up to present day or at least 2020. So uh, Universal Discourse, you said you wanted to add something after I did my little spiel. Yeah, let me add something for specificity. When Ahmed takes power uh, in 2019 and gets the Nobel Peace Prize for uh, making peace between Eritrea and Ethiopia, settling that, uh, one of the first things we ever heard that something was wrong is that his Nobel Peace Prize was revoked a year later. So on November 4th, 2020, while the rest of the world was occupied with uh, American elections, Ahmed decides that he's going to launch an all-out war against Tigray because they accused Tigray of basically raiding an armory, attempting to raid an armory to defend themselves. Tigray immediately said it was preemptive. Ahmed also moved to cut all communications, so it's sitting there in, in a bunch of conspiracy and, and shadow. We don't really know exactly. But it was clear that from the onset, Ahmed immediately took militant moves against Tigray, which used to be the ruling party at only 6% of the population, which is the northernmost region of Ethiopia, from the beginning. Eritrea shocks everybody by, after fighting tooth and nail, uh, to the point where they look kind of like North Korea against Ethiopia, they turn back around and commit their full armed forces to Ethiopia in order to suppress Tigray. So what's happening right now is that it appears that all of the atrocities, the excessive brutality, kidnappings, um, what do they call extrajudicial killings, rapes, etc. All of this appear to be at the hands of the Eritrean army as a kind of old grudge tribal beef with Tigray, with whom they used to be allies. So the crisis it's caused is something like 1.7 million at this point internally displaced people. They're facing famine. They're reporting the deaths. There's something like they're saying uh, almost half a million people are living in famine-like conditions now. Humanitarian aid and resource aid has been cut. Uh, however, uh, on the last check of the 445 trucks that were sent to Tigray, only 38 returned and nobody knows what happened to them. It's being officially declared war crimes, human rights watch, and uh, other factors at the United Nations are calling it a genocide officially, and they're calling it officially war crimes. There are over 80 ethnic groups in Ethiopia. The main regions involved is Almora, Eritrea, which is now independent, Ethiopia, Tigray, the northernmost. The refugees that have left have had to go into Sudan. Uh, there isn't any other place really for them. And on top of that, China has immediately stepped up to offer assistance because for China, especially, that is an extremely strategic location. So you've got all that happening at the same time. And there's no communication. Um, there are journalists there and other aid workers there who are able to get some news out. Al Jazeera is there now. 
uh, but some nationals that have been displaced are desperately trying to report on the situation. It looks like Ahmad is simply, there are only 9 million people in Tigray. 2 million are already gone. Another half a million facing starvation. Uh, it looks like he's literally trying to wipe them out. And the atrocities are so bad, they're saying it's as if Idi Amin were running the killing fields of Pol Pot. So they say it's unparalleled. They've never seen anything like it. Just so you know how bad it is. Yeah, a lot of the language that uh, Abby's using, he's like calling uh, Tigrains and you know their allies weeds and everything. Oh, yeah. Basically weeds. talking about how we have to weed them out. Yeah, he's always like using weeds as a metaphor for them, just Correct. making them sound like a pest. It's Correct. That type of language lends itself to the genocide and the type of extrajudicial killings we've been seeing. In Rwanda, it was the cockroach, yeah. if you remember that. Okay, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Or you got to cut down and, the tall yeah. trees as well. I was just about to say. Yeah. That was the code. Uh, to give to give a little bit of uh, additional information about the ethnic groups that exist in Ethiopia to show you just how much of a mosaic this is, I'm going to share my screen really quick, uh, and the links to this will be uh, below when you if you're listening to this on the podcast. So as you can see, there's over 50 uh, major ethnic groups within Ethiopia. And as you can see, Tigray is here in the northeast. Sudan is kind of the northwest, uh, or to the west of the northern westmost part of Tigray. And Eritrea is just to the north of that. So that is the kind of geographic breakdown of Tigray um, and Ethiopia. One of the other things that is important to note is that while uh, we are all saying that you know there's a genocide going on and that sort of stuff, we actually have evidence of such. So both the Tigrayan mm -hmm. people and uh, other satellite images have marked locations of mass graves. We're talking the Tigrayan people had decided that they would mark mass graves with painted blue rocks kind of in a circle so satellite images could pick them up. And then also satellite imagery and, and standard satellite imagery analysis have discovered mass graves where you can see the topography of the earth recently disturbed where like you're talking like a mile or two of disturbed earth what else is that going to be if there's nothing built on top of it it's a mass grave so that's what we're we're dealing with here i think that um we covered the history of this of the buildup at least of this fairly well i think we can get into what is happening today and then our analysis of what that means for the larger area say for a uh, one thing I wanted to ask is, in doing some research on this, I, saw that, I don't know if we mentioned this, the TPLF, mm -hmm. when they were in power, there was a, wasn't there a lot of allegations of corruption from them? So Prime Minister Ahmed, he came to power actually with promises of rooting out corruption. Given how, me personally, given how much that is a calling card of budding dictators, I'm not sure if that was actually true or if that was him saying, I want them, especially with what we're seeing happening today. That's just my opinion on that. To maybe push back just a little bit, and given that the TPLF war did have some significant power prior to this, them holding, trying to hold on to it as much as they could is not, it's not unusual for a, for a group that's potentially losing their power. Uh, could you expand on that a little bit? I just want to get, make sure I understand your full opinion. Yeah. Well, like just to give an example, if we were mentioned Rwanda before, there was different uh, backgrounds of whether the Hutus or the Tutsis were in power. And then when that changed, you had a lot of tension between, okay, well, you used to be in power, but now you're not. And in this case, you had the TPLF, which had some significant power over over the Ethiopian government, but uh, they had they had power, but 
with the re election reform, they lost some of that power. And refusing to go along with national elections was seen as, all right, they're kind of not playing playing ball okay. here. Yeah, that that is true. When the uh, the prosperity party came in came together as for to form the new government, the TPLF refused to actually join that government. I think they were given an olive branch to to join the government, but they they abstained because of the all the the feeling that they were being slighted in their contribute contributions to what is Ethiopia today after the derg was not being respected enough. That is I'm bringing that up, but none of that is to say that Tigray attacks on military bases or the government's scorched earth policy are in any way, shape or form justified. This oh, is course. a this is a yeah, this is a political dispute that really should not have escalated this way. Well, it's literally um, you know, Marxist Leninist communism versus democracy playing out on African soil and also Tigray. It tends to be very traditional, so you also have culture involved. And this looks a lot like tribal warfare, typical. It looks a lot like what happened when South Africa fell. It looks a lot like Rwanda. Uh, Eritrea being one of the most orthodox of all time, even for Africans. Go ahead, Mateo, please. A lot of that tribal uh, fighting, too, almost risks like a balkanization of Ethiopia. Like it could just fall apart and fracture. If we thought the Syrian uh, conflict bred a lot of refugees, like a huge refugee crisis, mm -hmm. Just imagine what a country the size of Ethiopia could cause if this gets way out of hand. It's already the single most, the single most extensive refugee crisis instant overnight already. It's surpassed everything already. It's hard to say that, uh, yeah, like the UK, like refugees can disrupt a lot of things in geopolitics. Like it's hard to say the UK would have exited the EU if, it, if not for the Syrian uh, refugee crisis. That was a huge pushing point against uh, everyone at home in the UK. And Ethiopia is home to 112 million people. It is about the half the size of the United States in terms of total population. And its population, despite all this, is continuing to grow much faster than other Syria's places. Syria's like 15% of that. It's crazy. And, and the amount of internally displaced people is astronomical. 1.7 million. Yep. It's, it's already 2 million as of today. So yeah, I've got 108 million people in the, the demographic pyramid, which I get, or I sent to you guys in, in the group chat was that this is a rapidly growing population. It is very young. It is very, um, excuse me, it's what we think of in the traditionally the undeveloped world uh, that is now becoming the developed world where you've got a, a massive population boom post-1945. It's called part of the Cold War boom, and it particularly hits, uh, excuse me, uh, South America and or in Africa, particularly Sub-Saharan Africa, respectively. Um, I can't speak to a lot of what's going on within Ethiopia to a massive degree, but I can definitely talk about what's going on within the region. Uh, and there's a number of players here. China is now finally starting to actually reach out globally in a physical presence. And in Djibouti, which is literally right next door to Ethiopia, it's a little hole in the wall there on a map, is that there is a now Chinese base. Now, granted, it's right next to the American base, so we'll have to see how that one goes. But in a general sense here, they are there. Uh, next to two global powers that this is literally within airstrike range or, you know, the, if the United States wanted to, they could send in the Marines in a couple of hours. Uh, if we're wanting to get into the real conversation, though, it's actually towards the West. And that is obviously Sudan and Egypt. This is the damming of the Nile River within Ethiopia. And Ethiopia not only has domestic concerns, but incredibly strong international concerns because they're trying to build out a modern infrastructure in a modern 
basically economy and society. And the problem that we have with this is that to do that, you need to make massive investments. And one of these is a dam to actually, you know, control flooding and irrigation within the Nile River in, in the general area that is eastern Ethiopia. And that has now put them into massive tensions with Sudan and Egypt that I've been watching all summer may end up blowing up into a war in its own regard. So Ethiopia is in a very precarious place, and I'm very interested to see where it goes, but it's also very frightening. The the ability to control flooding and and levees and and that sort of stuff is meant to provide pretty much all of Ethiopia's power needs. It is one. It is it's not if it's not the largest dam in existence upon completion. It is one of the largest dams in existence completion, and it's the amount of damming that's going to happen that greatly threatens the fresh water and uh, agricultural water supply that Egypt and, and I, the other name escapes me right now, but uh, both of those countries, the bordering countries uh, rely on for their own prosperity. One question I, I'd like to ask if something universal mentioned, uh, in addition to the traditionalism, do we think like maybe a, a sense of, like, for lack of a better word, machismo, like these guys are <laughs> men in charge and they're like, no, I'm not going to back down. That'll make me look weak. I think that maybe factors into some of the overreactions that we're seeing. I think that would that definitely plays into why Tigray itself is so adamant about remaining in power. Like I said earlier, Ethiopia wouldn't exist today without the TLPF. It, it just wouldn't. Um, they they established every single pretty much political party and uh, political group that makes up the government, including including oppositional parties. They all basically followed the TLPF's model um, shortly after, shortly before the fall of the dirt. And so if you are the founder of a country, why would you, and you're still, and you think things are still going good, why would you want to give that up? Why would you, you know, succeed that kind of power? And I, I do think that's part of it. I also think it's uh, with, with Prime Minister Ahmed, I think that he wants to break that link from the Tigrayans. And I can't know for certain the exact reason for that, if it's maybe just personal power or if it's larger larger political uh, issues within Ethiopia like and wanting to establish a quote-unquote uh, de-ethnic federalized country. And you can't do that if you're dominated by one ethnic. Mateo, what are, what are your thoughts on some of the things that we've been talking about? Well, actually, I keep thinking about that map you showed and how I brought up uh, the balkanizing effect of it. Mm -hmm. um, I'd like to know like, if there are any smaller like regional conflicts going on besides just the big names that we really focus on. Like, Is there a chance of anything like breaking off? Like, If you look at Afghanistan, the Taliban is not exactly one cohesive unit. There, there are factions among it. And I was wondering if like among the Tigrayans, is there maybe some sort of split where they're right now, they have a common enemy mm -hmm. and they're working together perfectly fine. I was wondering if there's a threat of maybe something else even breaking out. Let's say if everything gets resolved somehow, which obviously is not going to happen anytime soon. Do you soon. mean in Tigray or do you mean yeah. in Ethiopia? Or actually all of Ethiopia right, so, yeah, would be a better question. Yeah, actually Afar and Amara are absolutely outraged. So the first thing they've said because the conflict brought these Eritrean foot soldiers right back into their lands where they are usually not affected. And I think they were, as a result, they said something to number when it was, when they passed was like 10,000 bodies. That's just part of the mass graves you're seeing bodies floating down the river. 
right? Washing up on the shore everywhere, the whole country, right? So Afar and Amra immediately, immediately demanded, like, what, what, what is going on here? This is outrageous. So they have immediately held um, Ahmed accountable for this, and they're demanding that he end it. So that's two other major regions that have been, uh, you know, on the radar forever and ever, Afar and Amra, very important regions. It's all over Djibouti. Djibouti's the port, tiny little port, like the size of Kuwait, tiny port city that's got the major new contracts with China. That's what's um, got everybody uh, trying to fight this. Let's see who's dominant in that area. It doesn't seem to be the traditional sort of, we hate each other and now there's nothing stopping us, which is balkanization, which is what happened in Bosnia-Herzegovina. I don't think that's going to happen here. But you've got two major uh, regions immediately demanding uh, that there be a ceasefire. And you have the very current United States response, if you'd like to uh, hear about that. Yeah, uh, go ahead. Yeah, so I wanted to leave you with the U.S. finally on the table again. So uh, yesterday this came through. Uh, I've gotten this from the Office of the President, the Government of the National Regional State of Tigray. It came through yesterday. This is their official statement to President Biden's executive order on the crisis in Ethiopia. Briefly, the government of Tigray is particularly grateful for the diverse steps taken by the United States government to address breaches of international humanitarian law and grave human rights violation by Ethiopian, Eritrean, and allied Amhara forces operating in Tigray, even though Amhara, we acknowledge its repeated calls for Eritrean and Amhara forces to withdraw from Tigray and for a negotiated ceasefire toward a peaceful resolution of the ongoing war. To that end, we invite the United States to play the role of facilitating negotiations for a ceasefire, along with other international partners, the executive order, albeit long overdue, Will go a long way in helping resolve the crisis in the region. Um, specifically, President Biden is correct in identifying this crisis as, quote, an unusual and extraordinary threat to the national security and foreign policy of the United States, unquote. And so that's the situation the U.S. is being asked to come to the table on behalf of Tigray. Now, the last time we came to the table on someone's behalf, that didn't end well. So I got to bounce uh, and I hate to do it because I've got people in Tigray, colleagues, et cetera. We've, we've lost some young students there uh, in Eritrea in the middle of this. So I'm going to bounce. I've got some stuff to do. Uh, please don't overlook the humanitarian aspect of sure. this. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. Take care. To piggyback off of what um, Universal Discourse is saying, one of the things that the United States government has done is actually implemented sanctions against Eritrea, uh, against military officials within Eritrea, and doing that first step to recognizing that the sovereign sovereignty and uh, humanitarian human rights violations, rather, has been has actually been ongoing. As far as the humanitarian situation, I think universal discourse is 100% correct. We should be talking about what kind of things are being done in order to alleviate the humanitarian crisis. Uh, one of the things that is happening right now is that they're experiencing the worst famine in uh, in the last decade as well because of the amount of fighting that is going on and the uh, the drought that is typically happening at this time this time of year. So what are the things that the international community is doing to help Tigray in this regard? And what are the things that if it's not doing enough or not doing anything at all, what should it be doing? 
I think that was actually more of a UD comment. Uh, <laughs> and, I, and I hate that she lives on that or she leaves on that note, but uh, I, I can't talk about human, humanitarian aid. That's, that's a very specific niche. And a lot of that doesn't go through certain diplomatic channels in the regards that when USA acts in particular guard or we're trying to act in a particular guard is that, you know, they'll send in for the United States, they'll send in uh, U.S. military forces and C-17s and C-5s and they'll send in humanitarian aid in that regard. Or they'll actually be there to help pro or sponsor UN forces or uh, UN peacekeeping efforts. Um, and there's a, a number of different ways. You literally have everything from the Salvation Army to all these different uh, international organizations that do this. So I can't talk about most of those because that is not anything I touch on. What I can talk about is that when this comes to a humanitarian crisis that the United States is saying that it cares and it's fired off sanctions. But in two ways, I don't think this has actually been in any way really helpful. Number one is that when it comes to Africa and investment in Africa, the Americans have really not been playing ball for a very long time, if at all. We're largely looking at this as being a, a domestic overture of the Chinese, and particularly in the last 20 years, in the last 10 years, we've seen China just working its way forward. And so if we're talking about even within the confines of Ethiopia, I think this is China's this is China's game. Now, if the United States wants to step in, we can, but the sanctioning is actually a step back. Uh, and this actually reflects more in our isolationist stance that we've been getting more and more into. Um, I, I hate to say it, but I mean, the, uh, China? China is the big player here, and I don't really trust China on humanitarian rights, but uh, uh, right now they seem to be the one that actually is going to be able to call the shots if they want to. If I can uh, piggyback off of that, and this that'll be the last thing I say before I have to bounce, is I think uh, what Tiberius is saying about China stepping in the role is absolutely correct. There's a great piece by uh, Francis Fukuyama about the end of history and how really communism was not a viable option. The only way forward is liberal democrat democracy with capitalism. But what we're seeing with China and also with Russia is the idea that authoritarianism is a potentially viable solution. And we need to not have that be a viable solution because that's a bad way to run a government. And by the US not seeding its role on the world stage, as we've been seeing in recent recent actions, we're kind of leaving that opening for China to step in. And that's not, you know, China fear mongering. That's we don't want authoritarian governments to take that role and say, oh, you know what? They're all right. We can maybe go with them. As far as a peace process with this, one thing that they sh definitely should happen is looking at uh, South Africa post-apartheid. They had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Mo I feel like most places with that kind of ethnic tension, even the United States should have truth and reconciliation commissions to try to resolve this. They're not perfect, but they're a necessary step because these things have to be have to be brought out into the open. No, I 100% agree with that. Uh, North Kircherman, I know that you have to go. So thank you so much for joining the program. And I hope that you will be joining us in the future. Of course. Good to see you again. Thanks, man. So uh, as far as the humanitarian uh, situation is going on, as of September 2nd, according to the uh, United Nations Office for Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, since July 12th, less than 10% of the trucks that have reached desperate populations affected by months of fighting have managed to actually get through. It noted that only access routes to Tigray via Afra region using the Samara Alba corridor has been inaccessible since August 22nd. Humanitarian partners estimate that 100 trucks of food, non-food items, and fuel need to enter Tigray every day to sustain an adequate response. The United Nations has been, along with REST, as mentioned earlier in the program, have been providing 
the Tigray region with uh, school, portable water, and medical aid. If these routes are cut off, all that stuff goes away, and then you're going to exacerbate the already desperate situation. So OCHA has also highlighted that in addition to food, a minimum of 200,000 liters of fuel is required for humanitarian response every week. And the reason for that is, is that they are mobile medical centers spread throughout Tigray because it is a predominantly rural area. It doesn't have a lot of infrastructure that can sustain, um, generate power and that sort of thing to maintain these uh, medical facilities. So they have mobile medical units relying mainly on generators and, uh, you know, organizations such as Doctors Without Borders and the like. The agency pointed out that around 7 million is needed every week to sustain humanitarian operations in Tigray, equivalent to 300 million beer, which is the local currency, including for salary for staff, local procurement, cash-based assistance, but only 47 million beer has been brought in since July 12th. On the, the spillover from the 10 months long of conflict between Ethiopia troops and the Tigray Defense Force into neighboring Afra and Aramara regions continue to affect civilians, resulting in food insecurity, displacement, and disruptions for livelihoods. Around 1.7 million people are estimated to be facing food insecurity in Afra and Armara. And United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres warned that, quote, a humanitarian catastrophe is unfolding before our eyes, with more than 2 million people displaced and roughly 300,000 more people displaced in Afra and Almara. So these are the kind of situations that we are seeing happen in Tigray. Eritrea has been involved in the fighting, as previously mentioned, and preventing routes coming into Tigray from its north, while uh, routes coming in from what used to be Afra and Armara are also being cut off by the Ethiopian government. So with that said, what more can be done absent, because the political wheel isn't there, absent military intervention? There needs to be like a real ceasefire. Uh, I think back in June, early July, there's like a unilateral ceasefire that was kind of just more just a statement of like intent, really, because usually with a ceasefire, you see arrangements for humanitarian aid to right. come in, go around. We were talking about that earlier. It really hasn't played out how you would ever want it to. All the warring factions in there would have to just really allow for a major period of uh, humanitarian intervention. But um, you were saying this food in food insecurity earlier. I would say it's even worse than that. Like, I, obviously, it's food insecurity, but uh, I think people are starting to die of famine conditions yes. in there. So it's like insecurity might even not be a strong enough word these days anymore because it's it's getting really no, there's bad definitely as other reports have stated that there are experiencing famine like uh, famine conditions so people are dying of starvation yeah. right now uh tiberius what about you what are your thoughts about this okay so as far as the options that are you know palpable on the table the only people that the, i'm sorry the only organization or people that I think that can actually get involved and alleviate this to any kind of degree without everything going to complete and absolute hell is obviously the Americans. The Americans have C-17, C-5, C-130 Hercules that they can literally just load up full of containers of food and what have you and literally just parachute it out the back. We do have that airlift capability and if we literally wanted to fly into the area, you don't even have to land it. You can just parachute it out. We have that logistical ability. We've done it before. We can do it again. Problem with the United States is that the United States is incredibly isolationist. We don't want to be involved in everybody's messes, and that's because of Afghanistan, the Taliban, that is from numerous wars in the sandbox. And this is just another thing that a lot of, if you will, the elite or the political elite in Washington and most of the American populace is going to be like, oh, great, another thing we have to deal with. So 
you need the political will on the American front to get there. Now, outside of that, as far as what's left, China doesn't have the ability. And then that means it's up to anyone who's in the regional actors to, to be involved. And I, I hate to say this, I don't see anyone who wants to play nice here. Uh, Eritrea has been skirmishing with Tigray as it is. And if they're not skirmishing with Tigray, they're skirmishing with uh, Addis Ababa and the Ethiopians as a general. Uh, you've got Sudan, which doesn't even have a connection into the area, but they are concerned with what Ethiopia is doing, uh, and they don't have any ability to access, and Sudan's not exactly a, a thriving state. They're in the midst of still uh, a more or less of a civil war with South Sudan. South Sudan. Uh, the only other people that really even have any kind of capability of getting involved is Egypt, and they don't have any kind of physical border. So in any kind of way that I'm looking, this is probably going to get a lot worse. No, that, that I, I 100% agree with you, Tiberius, uh, especially considering the fact that Ethiopia used to be the the power center of the uh, African Union, and it was it, it it deployed troops across the African continent in order to take on terrorist organizations, separatist groups, and that sort of thing in order and peacekeeping missions. You know, blue helmets, right? They would supply a lot of the forces that did this, and that was coming mainly because of the history of Ethiopia, mainly coming from Tigray itself, with their expertise that they had gained during their conflict with the Dirk. So, what is the likely outcome? We're coming approaching about time, so this is when we get into the the nitty gritty and the the depressing bit of this entire thing. Uh, what is the most likely outcome in your eyes that we'll see happen from the Tigray conflict? Sure, um, I, I, I kind of alluded to this, and I hate to, to put it this way, but this is probably going to get worse. Uh, the question is uh, again not specialized in this, but Tigray has a lot of the military and a lot of the um, what, how do I want to put this? A lot of the competence when it comes to dealing with this as a, on a military front. So while I don't think they have the possibility to definitively just take over Ethiopia or defeat their enemies outright, they have the ability to sustain and fight even with the diminishing population because they have the experience, they have the know-how, and that pays dividends. That's a lot of things that a lot of other people in the region just don't have. They're not military. They are not battle-hardened, experienced, um, te or technologically advanced in any kind of way that makes you go, oh, yeah, they can actually perform combat operations in a sustained manner. If Ethiopia had this to a large degree, they would absolutely dominate the region and no one would ask questions. And that, that gets in a lot levels of your personal ethics, but I'm not exactly for that. Um, so anyway, in a general sense here is that th this is what happens whenever power and responsibility goes completely separate ways. And so you probably the general outcome that I'm looking at here is that Ethiopia is going to seek to end Tigray as a functioning entity, but Tigray has every ability outside of, you know, just access to food, the ability to repel that. And so if somebody can smuggle it in or if somebody decides that they want to flip sides and help them, Tigray is here for the fight and will stay there for years. And if you haven't checked history before, it's really hard to starve people. People will literally either eat shoe leather so this is something that could last for the better part of 10 years before it finally dies. And so general or general assumption there, uh, that's the way it's probably going to go. The If you were looking for maybe a, a shining light is that somebody's going to have to get involved. And it's not that there isn't anybody who can get involved. Literally, the British could handle this if they wanted to. But it's who has the will, who's got the ability. And between COVID and a world that is rapidly walking away from globalism – 
the only people I see that actively could and might give a shout out this is China. And I'll end with that. Oh, thank you, Tiberius. Mateo, what are your thoughts? If Ethiopia can stay together, if they don't fracture, like I'm kind of afraid they might. I agree with Tiberius here. It'd probably have to be China. Uh, just for my own bit of analysis here, I do for the most likely outcome as of right now, if things stay as they are, is possibly the balkanization of Ethiopia. The amount of ethnic strife and tensions that exist because of the ongoing conflict, especially with bordering nations, Eritrea specifically, coming in and helping out the the governing party, which is uh, made up of, of uh, mostly uh, different uh, different ethnic groups, is leading to additional ethnic tensions outside between Ethiopia's central government and Tigray, it's the Tigrayans. And so if this continues, if it worsens, if other power players decide to try to pop off, for example, if Al-Shabaab tries to recruit people within Somalians, within Ethiopia, because there are there is a, a fairly sizable population of Somalians inside of Ethiopia as well, ethnic Somalians, they try to do that. You could see a continuing fracture of Ethiopia. And it was kind of put in there from the start because with of Ethiopia's founding constitution in 1992 allowed for there to be ethnic federalism and for the parties being mainly mainly set up to be ethnic representatives possibly because of the situation and the time of that being required and not knowing what to do otherwise what else to do uh, that kind of cemented some of these these tensions within body politics that there were ripe for this kind of thing and so i i do i do worry that ethiopia will will disintegrate as we know it and it will branch become a wider conflict within the horn of africa and uh central africa but with that everybody i am sad to say that we are actually out of time thank you everybody that and uh with that everybody as we always say at crowdsource politics keep your head up through the political storm